0: Hi, I'm Brandon Dawson, and this is The Distiller, a podcast about how we find meaningful work and how we find meaning in the work we do. My guest for this episode is literacy advocate Libby Hunter. Libby is the co-founder and executive director of Wordplay Cincinnati, a nonprofit community literacy center committed to helping young people in Cincinnati fulfill their potential through reading, writing, and storytelling. Libby started Wordplay in 2012 in response to an incident that happened in her neighborhood, an incident she talks about in our interview. She started her career in nonprofit work before moving into the for-profit sector out of necessity, but uh, eventually moved back into nonprofit work starting Wordplay. And starting Wordplay was more than just working in the nonprofit world. It was the challenge of starting and running a nonprofit from the ground up. Uh, A task and a journey filled with challenges and learning opportunities that you'll hear Libby talk about uh, at length in our conversation. I think my favorite thing about this interview is the insight that it gives into what meaningful work really means for people who have truly oriented their lives around working in the service of others. Sure, there are degrees of meaning and not everybody can uh, be working in the nonprofit sector. If we were, society wouldn't function. But for all the conversation about meaningful work, it's surprising to me to hear how little that comes up in the discussion with someone like Libby. And it it's not because it's not a consideration, it's because the entire context in which her work takes place is that meaning. Her work is so pervaded by meaning that it can be difficult to parse out exactly what that means to her and where in that work her opportunities come for rest and personal reflection on what she does. We met with Libby at a fairly new spot in Cincinnati. Three Points Urban Brewery is a brand new, and by brand new, I mean only a month old as of our recording. It's a brewery and taproom in Cincinnati's Pendleton Arts District. You may recall, we were in the Pendleton for episode 11 when we met with Dr. Meredith Shockley-Smith at Urbana Cafe. Urbana is just across the street from Three Points Brewery. Well, even in the two and a half months since that episode, the neighborhood has continued to change with new businesses opening its It seems every week, Aaron and the staff of Three Points let us in just before they opened up on a steamy July afternoon, and uh, we sampled some of their delicious beers while we talked with Libby. Libby is an inspiration. She's a down-to-earth hero who's doing great work in the city day after day. She doesn't talk about herself much. She's used to talking about wordplay and the mission, so the insights we got into her process, her journey, and her struggles was a privilege and as you'll hear there were some moments where the struggle and the losses of a life lived in service to the community really comes through i am deeply appreciative of the time libby spent with us i really enjoyed our time together i hope you'll enjoy our discussion as much as i did here it is my conversation with libby hunter of wordplay cincinnati on the distiller so you are the executive director and co-founder of wordplay before we get into the the story of how you got there, tell us a little bit about, I know that Wordplay was started in 2012 mm-hmm. with a mission to help young people in Cincinnati fulfill their potential through reading, writing, and storytelling. Mm-hmm. Tell us what that means and what Wordplay does on a, on a daily basis.
1: So what it means is we are um, really working hard to help give kids a positive relationship with reading and writing and uh, storytelling can encompass so much, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. But understanding your own personal narrative, um, how it relates to the world around you, how it it impacts sense of identity, all of that. So giving kids a positive safe space to explore um, and to also gain those vital (laughs) literacy skills in stealthy ways um, so that they can can gain confidence and self-efficacy and become lifelong learners.
0: Okay. And that um, comes about in uh, tutoring in literacy <laughs> Actually, classes? yeah,
1: not, not even tutoring so much. When we started, we kind of uh, identified tutoring as one of the things we offer, but um, it, we, we first talk about the space before learning can even happen, building relationships. So first and foremost, we're all about community building, being, bringing people together, mm-hmm. um, uh, often from very different backgrounds, uh, for, for a mutual exchange. You know, it's okay. not just that the kids have a need and we fulfill it. We, we all have a need and we can all help each other learn and grow. So okay. um, after school programs, we're now in schools. We have two locations. One is inside a in high school, so we're there to work with teachers in their classrooms as well as after school. Then we have weekends, and we do special off-site events as well.
0: Cool. And the majority of it happens at the Wordplay Center, which is in Northside in Cincinnati. Yeah, actually about
1: half and a half uh, at our okay. main writing center in Northside, but then also Aiken High School. We see as many as uh, two hundred kids a week there. Oh wow! So, yeah. Wow,
0: great. And then the the Wordplay Center in Northside is a companion to the Urban Legend Institute.
1: Yeah, now Urban Legend Typewriters. Gave oh, it okay, name. Urban so, Legend yeah, Typewriters. Yeah, we scaled it down to just typewriters. That was our biggest uh, seller. Okay. Um, I have a wonderful guy, Dr. Richard Polt from Xavier University, who was our typewriter guy. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just too much to keep a whole store stocked with cool things and um, to find volunteer clerks. Gotcha. And we needed the program space, so typewriters are it.
0: Awesome, mm-hmm. awesome. So if you're in Cincinnati and you need a used typewriter or you need your typewriter repaired... Or mm-hmm. you're looking to sell an old typewriter, or donate, better right. yet, an that's old right. typewriter.
1: Absolutely. Check out. Yeah, with that's me. our social enterprise, and and really, it does bring in enough revenue to truly help keep some of our programs free each year. So right on. Yeah, it's fantastic.
0: So that gives us context to talk a little bit about why you are doing this and why you started this. And I know that you've been interviewed before and have have given a bit of the story, but give us, um, you know, the the gist of it, because what I really want to focus on, what the focus of the podcast is is sort of what that means to you about your work. So what what have you done in your past professionally that led to this point?
1: You know, boy, I've had a real, uh, very meandering career path. Um, and I, I have to say, I've always had a real drive uh, to do good um, and to do good work uh, in a way that was uh, meaningful socially and on a, on a larger level. Um, it's not always been the case sometimes in hardship, <laughs> right? We just have to take a job that pays yeah. something. So I uh, started off thinking I was going to be in academia. I was, I was just... Uh, aimed at becoming a professor, um, studying East European studies, uh, went overseas, did research after my um, graduate work, and got there just through sheer academic burnout, uh, got involved with the the Red Cross. I was living in Hungary at the time, mm-hmm. the International Red Cross. Uh, So their their headquarters in Budapest, I was able to work as assistant to the head of the international department and get involved with all kinds of fantastic things, refugee resettlement being the main one. Mm -hmm. And so that really inspired me to kind of take a 90 degree turn from academia into the nonprofit world and came back here to Cincinnati um, and got involved with uh, Catholic Charities, first as a volunteer and then as uh, their first refugee resettlement coordinator. Um, so that definitely was my on en- well, no, I can't even say that was my entree to the nonprofit world. back in grad school, a friend of mine had founded a nonprofit called mm-hmm. the East European Village Project, and I was one of his first people to go into villages., uh, my territory was Romania um, wow. and established sites for volunteer teachers to come from the US. and spend their summers in Romania. So I okay. got my first uh, nonprofit bug back then in grad school. And uh, it was actually a fantastic learning experience. I stayed involved with them for two years. Uh, And then, yeah, after I resettled back in the States in the mid-90s, Catholic Charities um, had to make a detour into other things Mm -hmm. that would sustain me once I became a single mom.
0: Got to pay the bills.
1: Yeah, exactly. And uh, real estate happened to be it. I was renovating houses on the side. I love working with my hands um, to bring in a little bit of extra cash. And uh, was, you know, then rather suddenly single mom with three kids, uh, no child support, no safety net. And I said, wow, I've got this real estate license. Maybe I should go ahead and become a salesperson, which to me was like a big, awful yeah. word. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a salesperson. It was completely counter to my what I thought my identity was as helping people. But I, I just tried to reframe my work in real estate um, as helping people. You know, it really it really is that. And I got very involved uh, in a personal um, kind of commitment to my, of mine to the environment. So I got very involved with the U.S. Green Building Council and sustainable building and also... Um, Affordable housing for lower and, and low-moderate income families. So that's also another big issue right here in Cincinnati. Yep. So it's very gratifying. Toward the end of my six and a half career, six and a half year career um, in real estate, I was working almost exclusively with nonprofit community development corporations, cool, and trying to stabilize neighborhoods through low and moderate income housing.
0: So wordplay is not a new thing for you in terms of both the nonprofit sector in terms of attacking social issues. Mm-hmm. You said that you ha- that you have a drive to do good or to find meaning. Mm-hmm. One of the things that i'm finding is you know we started the podcast and we started talking about meaningful work Mm -hmm. and number one that doesn't mean the same thing to every person that you talk to and number two a lot of people don't actually think that way they may be doing meaningful work but they're not thinking of it in terms of a drive to do good in the world where does that impulse for you come before wordplay when you're in college, when you're in grad school, where did that start? Is that parents or you is know? it?
1: Actually, yeah, I, I could possibly credit it back to my parents. They're definitely part of it. Um, my dad was an educator his whole professional life and a farmer at the same time. So um, the overwork comes from my dad's side as well. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom is a long, she was an educator as well initially, and then a psychologist and just always volunteered, took me along with her and. Um, she remembers back to the time when i was a toddler uh, she remembers me wondering why there were homeless people in the world when we have all these trees my goal was to take everybody out into the forest and teach them how to build their own houses so it's this kind of hardwired thing in me that um, no no one you know if it's in our power to help then why are people suffering you mm-hmm. know why isn't there enough to go around and i and also that you know to whom much is given much is expected right so i feel yep. like it is uh, it is our obligation, those mm-hmm. of us who can, to do. And yep. so that's always been what's driven me. And um, much to my dad's concern, um, it's never been a paycheck <laughs> that's driven yeah. me. But, you know, what, what I've found is to, uh, to make that commitment to doing good uh, where there is absolutely no paycheck attached to it, um, to, to then live a simple life, you know, to scale down the lifestyle, you know, to make our lives as kind of austere as possible and rewarding. Right. And uh, it's not about the material things at all for me. So, um, although I need to drive a car.
0: Yeah, there's I like certain things nice you have bike. to have. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. right.
1: You know, I want to I live in a house. Um, so, of course, you know, those things are the realities of today's world. But um, I've found it to be very uh, freeing mm-hmm. to just be able to... S- Pair down my life you know as much as I possibly can so that this work which sustains me in so many ways and now finally I get paid to do it as well
0: right is that something do you do you have the dark nights of the soul in terms of saying maybe I should just give all this up and go back to the commercial world or is it embedded enough in you and is the maybe austerity is the wrong word but does the frugality necessary to work in the nonprofit world come naturally enough to you that there's not a conflict around oh, it? Oh,
1: no, there's conflict, absolutely. You know, um, my dog just had cancer and I'm $3,000 in the hole, you yeah. know? So things like that happen and, and I have no way to pay it off. I, I Until last year, to be perfectly honest, I cleaned houses on the weekends to get by, you know? Wow. So it is uh, it is perpetually a conflict. Uh, it's always been very worth it to stick through, you know, with this. And again, now word plays at a place where we're really healthy and we're, we're mm-hmm. trying to catch up all our staff to what are, you know, competitive right. salaries for this kind of work. Um, but no, I have to say the year I left real estate, uh, it rebounded. And my former real estate partner, it, she, who's an amazingly talented person, I mean, this was all to her credit, but just did um, outstandingly well. Many, you know,
0: right as you nice left. dollar
1: signs there, nice yeah. zeros behind it. And I thought, oh, did I pick the wrong time? You know, but um, the time kind of picked me, I think. And uh, I, I made a commitment to it. And I, I really feel I t- the need to honor that commitment.
0: Yeah, yeah do you find, cause you're a, in Cincinnati, you're a person that's, that's out there in the public. The work that you're doing is fairly public work. The work of nonprofit. I was thinking about this today and actually wrote down that one of the things I didn't know about the work of nonprofits was the degree of collaboration necessary. You mm-hmm. can't do nonprofit work by yourself and be a solo entrepreneur because you got to have boards and you got to have the city on your side and you got to cultivate, uh, donors and volunteers and if you are an introvert who doesn't know how to work with people the nonprofit world is going to be really difficult for you so i guess that's maybe a statement i'm wondering because you seem like a really visible person to me if you have to combat the perception that visibility automatically equals um well she must be doing really well she must not she must not need anything. Libby's out there. I see her everywhere. She's, she's on TV and she's being interviewed. So she's, she's doing fine. Whereas in the back room, you're counting the numbers mm-hmm. and you're scraping to make things work. Does that resonate?
1: Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot in there that, it, that is very true. You know, first, the collaboration, it's essential that nonprofits collaborate. Um, you know, nobody can exist as an island anymore. It used to kind of be the case. And certain large nonprofits, especially, had their piece of the pie carved out in yeah. their territory. You know, there, there's no room for organizational ego in this day and age. And, uh, and so, yeah, I'm very proud of wordplay and, and the, the level of collaborations that we have across the city because it only deepens the impact for the kids. And we cannot be all things to all children, right? We have our yeah. mission, we have our guardrails for what we will and won't do. And so, if we can help dovetail with other really fantastic fantastic efforts to give a more holistic, um, approach to the kids we reach. That's, that's the goal. Um, so yeah, it is hard. You know, I, um, in previous work, I've had to do a lot of public speaking, um, and, uh, a lot of writing that becomes visible as well, whether it's grants or, you know, pieces to put, to publish out there. Um, but it is a constant struggle because you know, all those hours are essential of being out there kind of being the face or the mouthpiece of wordplay. Mm-hmm. Um, essential for outreach and education and uh, drumming up support drumming up new partnerships. Um, but it's all that time that I'm not actually then in the trenches doing the work, you know, and sometimes it can feel like the trenches, I'll be really honest. You know, it is, it is hard work often. It's long, um, hours. Uh, but, um, you know, and at the end of the day, I am an introvert, you know, I'm a very outgoing introvert as they say, but, uh, I, I like to have a quiet space to recharge, you know, so it's important. So there's, there's definitely a little, um, tug of war going on there.
0: Right on. So, You just hit on it a little bit. Talk about your days. Um, It's easy to say Libby runs wordplay and she's tackling literacy in Cincinnati. What are you doing every day? How much of it is working with kids and actually working in the programs? How much of it is what you just described about going out and meeting with people? Mm -hmm. What are you doing today? What did you do yesterday?
1: Yeah. So, uh, so it does change day to day to day, which I love. I need, I need that. Um, I need that varied schedule. Um, you know, so it, it wordplay has taken a huge leap in the last year. We're just reaching our sixth birthday this September. Um, and this past year we were able to hire our fifth full-time employee, um, Jared O'Rourke, who's our education and outreach director. So he runs all of our programs. Um, so until that point, we've had other people kind of helping to coordinate other programs for sure. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I do development, <laughs> I do programming, mm-hmm. um, I, I work on our again, the public being the public face of wordplay, our community partnerships. We have some very deep partnerships with CPS schools. Um, and, uh, until recently I also cleaned the toilets, you know, so it's kind of like everything literally from kind of high level fundraising strategy and meeting with our major donors down to making sure that the recycling goes out. Um, so on a day-to-day basis, you know, again, we have an amazing team. We have a, a super talented, um, full-time development communications person who is extraordinary Reba Hennessy. Um, And Sarah Nimmo, who is uh, basically her assistant, um, and then other program folks, Desiree and Jory, just an extraordinary team to share the workload. And then our board to see now that we have this amazing board of directors Mm -hmm. truly there for us. And and so it means that my days in the last six months or so, I actually feel like I can breathe again. (laughs) After six years? After six years. I feel like... um, I do have some balance back, you know, I remember all of us right striving for that elusive work-life balance and and uh, I think I've come to learn I think it is largely a myth that uh, I look for the balance over the course of time. It's not in the day-to-day. You know, I might still have a 12 or 14-hour day. Yeah. And it's really hard to do flex time <laughs> to make up for that. Yep. But trying really hard, um, then when I take time off, I'm getting ready to have 3 weeks off the radar, you know, that nice. we to, to do that and set that culture for our staff. Yeah. Um, so on any given day, you know, there's still a lot of grant writing. It's um it's brutal. I have to kind of sequester myself to write grants and get in the zone, you know. 12 hours nonstop thinking about um, how to phrase something. And um, and then it could be out there, you know, working with leadership at schools or CPS, you know, to, to go to meetings and kind of working on partnerships. Um, it, it, I still do like to retain a little bit of um, program time. It, it's, you know, that that's my heart and soul. That's why we started Wordplay is, yep. is being directly involved with the kids. That's what fuels me. Um, and so we have something that, that I started among our staff called the passion project. We're all working for wordplay because we care deeply about the mission, but sometimes our jobs take us away from that, which we are most passionate about. And so on our work plans, the employee work plans, um, you know, what, what they are doing day by day with kind of monthly goals and measurements. Uh, you know, I have everybody identify what their passion project is and I want them to be sure to allot, you know, a couple hours a week so that they're staying in touch with that. So for me, it's it's one of our teen programs, Word Up, um, staying involved with the kids, you know, mm. personally. And uh, it is so incredibly rewarding. That will refuel me like nothing else, you know. So it's right amazing. On. I got to say, you know, any chance I get to drive a kid to an event or something and have that talking time in the car. Yeah, <laughs> you know? and actually do it's it. It's like, yeah, not a part of my job description at all, but that that is the absolute best thing I think that I get to do.
0: Yeah. And you've told the story elsewhere about the specific impetus to starting Wordplay, which was an interaction with some kids that you had in Northside while you were working with a client of yours. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe you could tell a little bit of that Mm -hmm. just to give insight into how this whole thing started. I know you told the story elsewhere.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Sure thing. Um, So, you know, I never, I always like to start out by saying I, I never had the idea to start a nonprofit. I think I had this uh, wonderful pipe dream about winning the lottery and starting a foundation that could give money to people doing good things, right? That, right? That's kind of the dream of every nonprofit person is to eventually get to give the money away. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's why I say wordplay kind of happened to, to me. Um, I was a realtor uh, representing one of these um, community development corporations in Northside uh, renovating a building that had been vacant for you know 10 or 15 years it was on the edge of a park that had been kind of the hotbed of a lot of bad activity where our gang was hanging out and all and and then the teenagers in the park were um, it kind of came to to make that their home base their turf and um, I lived three blocks from there they were you know uh, dealing drugs um, you know dice games craps games tagging buildings And uh, when we went over one night, uh, we, meaning the architect and my client who was in a wheelchair, went over to this project, this small condominium conversion project. She was going to be buying the bottom unit so it could be Hmm. um, then designed to meet her wheelchair needs. It was dark out, and I think it was one of the first times that the kids in the park had seen some activity in that building that was kind of their building, right? So what's going on? I've lived in Northside since 1996, and it's been a common intimidation factor um, to, for kids to throw rocks at people. You know, when my kids were toddlers and we go play at the different parks around Northside, you know, kids would throw rocks at mm-hmm. us. It was just a thing. Um, and so the rocks started flying, and I was livid, you know, I was livid. And I knew calling the cops wasn't going to do a thing, you know. So I really wanted to just have a conversation with them. So first running over there like a mother, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, we yeah. don't throw rocks at people. And this lady's in a wheelchair for crying out loud. You know, what if that was your mother? What if that was your grandmother, your sister? Right. Do people throw rocks at you? You know, that whole, how does it feel? And I got I to gotta say, it was mostly the girls that were up in my face, right? <laughs> uh, denying that they did it and kind of yelling back at me. Um, but I wanted to stick it out, you know. And I really wanted to connect with them. It was a, a unique opportunity, I think, you know. So... Um, so In about 10 minutes or so, you know, things did settle down and and I was able to really, um, gain enough trust for them to answer my questions. I think they were somewhat amazed that this lady was just stopping and wanting to know more about them. You know, so I wanted to know their feelings of safety, their feelings of connectedness in the neighborhood. You know, I I was technically their neighbor, right? I live a few blocks from here. I've raised my kids here. Um, how do they feel about that connection? And, and I can say they didn't, they, they didn't feel any connection, you know? And I understand, I mean, North side is gentrifying rapidly. And even though this was seven right. years ago, um, they were feeling very marginalized. They wanted no part of the new people moving into the neighborhood. Right. Yep. Um, and so, um, so it was very eye-opening, and I have to say uplifting, you know, at the end they're cracking jokes, you know, they're asking me for money for a soda, you know, they're, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're wanting attention. And Actually I realized relating that to, yeah. we're relating. Yeah. yeah. We, we, we connected and, um, you know, and there's something so touching about that. I had worked with um, some, c- created some intervention groups for our refugee teens back when I was doing that work. And then um, some work with teenagers, at-risk teens overseas as well. Um, and, and to find the same thing, to find that it's all relational, you mm-hmm. know, that, that you show them that you care about a relationship with them, you know, yep. uh, you don't care about any outcome. There's no, there's no goal in it other than getting to know them. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a beautiful starting place. So I was obsessed with doing something to help the kids in the park, kind of feeling this collective guilt that, you know, they're there for a reason. You mm-hmm. know, I can guarantee you all of those families were struggling, you know, economically, right? Um, most of them probably living in poverty.
0: Yeah.
1: And so feeling that Cincinnati uh, having one of the highest childhood poverty rates in the nation and yet one of the lowest upward mobility rates for people in poverty to rise out of it. So I thought, you know, we have to do something. These kids are being squeezed into a place of no no opportunity. Right. Um, so... I uh, was getting ready to kind of organize a roundtable discussion about it and call different groups that would have an interest in this and talking about it. And I think um, being the impatient person that I am or or whatever, I just I just said, you know what? There's no time to talk. Let's do something. So uh, two nights later, I was having beers with a very good friend of mine, Alyssa Yancey. Uh, And Alyssa was a longtime educator at that point, a writer and a mother, a Northside mother, no less. So she had known of all these dynamics in the neighborhood, the gentrification, the, the marginalization, Northside. We, we, we always love to say, oh, Northside's so diverse. Um, it is, but it's completely segregated, <laughs> you know, almost right. entirely segregated, you know. So uh, shame on us for that. So, um, so talking with Alyssa and uh, explaining to her just that, that feeling that I walked away from the park that night with we have to do something for those kids, you know? So that's what I kept saying. And uh, that rhetorical, we, and Alyssa said, all right, let's do it. And so that night she threw open her laptop. She showed me some examples of creative literacy programs. Mm. Alyssa being a writer. I mean, I've always been a writer as well, but kind of a personal writer. (laughs) I never called myself a a creative writer per se. Um, So believing in the power of writing to connect uh, and to build confidence. um, And then of course, to instill those essential literacy skills. We settled on a model that was founded in San Francisco about 15 years ago, Eight Two Six National, founded by Dave Agers and uh, and Nina Caligari, who was a teacher he had worked with, Um, and I flew out to San Francisco to to check it out and uh, go through their kind of uh, introductory seminar on how to start a creative nonprofit. And said, this is it. You know, let's go forward. So Mm. it was uh, sheer naivete, I think, that that drove us forward, not knowing what the heck we were doing (laughs) one foot in front of the other. But also that failure is not an option kind of mentality. Uh And uh, here we are.
0: (laughs) I, I have so many questions about that because, I mean, it's easy to tell that story and say, so we were going to do it. I I would imagine that there's a thousand decisions and a thousand fears and anxieties that Mm -hmm. went into that. You were working as a realtor. You had been working as a realtor because you needed to make money and pay the bills. This is the decision to move away from the thing that you were doing (laughs) to make money and pay the bills. I mean, how anxious was that as a as a decision for Do you, you know,
1: I think personally that was the probably the only time in my life I could have done this. Um, mm. You know, again, a single mom with three kids, uh, zero savings in the bank. I, I had, I literally had nothing to lose, and I thought, man, if this, if I go bankrupt because of this, okay, big deal, <laughs> you know. And and that was really my thinking. And um, and so Alyssa, being that powerhouse behind the scenes, you know, she became board chair and all, um, knowing that I had her as the first partner, teammate, cheerleader, you know, everything. And then very quickly turning it over to the community. We had such a groundswell of support right away. Mm. And I think feeling that really, really bolstered me to take the leap to say, this is going to be my career. So knowing I wouldn't get paid for a while, Mm -hmm. um, I was able to t- still do real estate somewhat part-time. And and I think the biggest decision that helped me just sheerly make it and still be able to buy groceries that year was I sold my house in Northside. I had a big beast of a house, a big renovation project that had been uh, foreclosure you know, and vacant for many years and I was restoring it. And I thought, you know, I can't do this and start wordplay. So I sold that house to friends of mine, uh, took the proceeds, paid off my debt. And I said, okay, I'm debt-free at least. At least I'm back to square one now yeah, financially. And so I can keep, earning just enough through real estate while I'm doing word time, you know, kind of getting WordPlay up and running as it was a full-time gig. And uh, and it was a lot of 80-hour weeks for sure, but the boys and I moved into the apartment above WordPlay. There's a third floor. Uh, WordPlay has the first and second floors of our spaces and our, and our dog. And uh, the boys were some of our first volunteers, so it became a really How old were fantastic they when you started? family thing. Um, they were 12 and 14. So my twins, Evan and Owen, were 12. Isaac was 14. Okay. And... Um, you know, I didn't get paid till 2013. Um, that was a beautiful day, and it, but it was still very much in the low-income bracket, you uh-huh. know? So I have to say, uh, it, it was uh, many years of... That's a check you of,
0: pinned to the wall.
1: You know, it was a check I ran to the bank with, I'll tell yeah, you that. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> um, and then... Um, Three years later, I was thrilled to see that a a mortgage lender considered Wordplay a valid enough employer to uh, give me money to buy a little house. So, you know, so it's been quite a process. But, yeah, there was a huge element. I mean, I'm a risk taker. I sometimes say it's my worst quality and my best quality. I I just am a habitual risk taker. And um, this was a huge one. But, you know, I, I think, again, just knowing the people that we had on our team, people will often say wordplay is mine or it's mine and Alyssa's, mm-hmm. you know, and it's absolutely not. It's the communities, mm-hmm. you know, by the time we opened our doors, um, about nine months after furious planning, we had a thank you poster on the wall. that had over 150 names on it. Just of all those people that somehow helped yeah. launch this amazing organization. Right so.
0: I, it, it's funny to me. I, like you said a couple of things and I started writing down a list here as you were talking, because you say that you're a risk taker. You also must be a relentless optimist.
1: I am. Yeah. yeah. I know that maybe that's also my best or worst. <laughs> well, because I, um,
0: uh, you said, you said you were describing mm-hmm. the story of that incident with the kids on the street and you said you ran across the street as a mother. Yeah. You didn't say yeah. you ran across the street as a teacher. You didn't say mm-hmm. you like, you ran across the street to, to sh- tell them mm-hmm. what they should be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there there are several instances in what you just told where your impulse was, you know, you said, um, where's my note here? Uh, you said, what are we gonna do for them? Not what are we gonna do about them? Ah, yeah. uh, when you were talking to Alyssa, um, you said you have nothing to lose. A lot of people at that point in your life would have thought you have everything to lose because you're sort of at the bottom. Um, I'm just interested in that piece of your personality because even as, you, as I hear you telling these stories, at every decision point, at every inflection point in the story where somebody else might have done something mm-hmm. else, somebody have, might, might have reacted and told that story from the viewpoint of their client, not from the viewpoint of the kids mm-hmm. on the street, mm-hmm. your, your internal compass is oriented toward trust, toward optimism, yes, toward, potentially toward risk. Mm-hmm. But you can take a lot of risks and not take them from such a good and healthy and, and well-meaning place. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: thank you for saying that. I think I know I've given my dad some sleepless nights worrying <laughs> about about me through these years. Um, but he was an educator. He's very proud of where wordplay is. you know I'm sure I am i am a um a shameless um optimist <laughs> i mean i um you know, and I call myself a hopeless socialist romantic. you know, I want the best for everybody, and I think as a community, we come together to help everybody, right like a rising tide lifts all boats right yeah. um and um it it is so deeply ingrained in me um you know that uh, I, I guess I don't know any other option, you know? Um, again, I was willing to work part-time jobs on the side, piece them in around my um, um. evenings and weekends to make this happen, you know? And um, and it is, it is for the kids, but I, I do want to explain something that's really important. You know, in the nonprofit world, there's been this terminology that is, Quickly being unravelled, which is a good thing about the serving and the served, you know, mm. helping them and, and those who need help, and and we're trying to really change that um, that language around it because the reality is, like I was saying, when I connected with those kids in the park, I came away so fulfilled. I think they came away scratching their heads, I'm mm. probably wondering, "Wow, who is that lady?" And she wanted to, and that was kind of cool. But okay, whatever. Yeah. But I was like, I was so I, like I felt restored that night by hope you know because of them Mm -hmm. and so we approach it from that angle that that this you know both sides have beautiful things to offer and our volunteers so often say they think they're getting more out of this than the kids are you know which i i know not to be true it's very much a two-way street but um you know, it, it, I guess that's where I find the hope is yeah. that is it, I think it, it's there. The, the good stuff is there and and that, um, you know, it's we are not serving anybody. You know, we might talk about reaching them, partnering right. with the kids, partnering with their families. Um, they all have strengths and gifts mm. and assets to share that makes this community stronger. And they've been so undervalued and they've been so demeaned for being, quote, unquote, in need. Yeah. You know, um, so, you know, we might talk about at opportunity instead of uh, in need. But, um, you know, whatever jargon you want to use, these kids are amazing, and they have so much to share. And so, I want to try to help, be a part of the way of shifting that verbiage around how we look at.
0: Yeah, which says so much about where our culture is at right now, and the mm-hmm. us and them mentality, and getting further and further from opposite sides. That's right. Um, and it is when you're not when you're not engaging with anybody, it's really easy to make guesses and and uh, judgments about who they might be and what their what their motivations are.
1: The, yeah, that's exactly right. And yeah, this whole growing um, kind of. What do we call it? Like this huge, horrible divide about uh, us and other, right? And mm-hmm. the other. And then I, you know, I constantly go back to I saw Father Greg of Homeboy Industries, who you know started out in L.A. This amazing um, priest uh, who talked about people who are marginalized. And he said we use that terminology. And uh, and he said, you know, nobody should be marginalized. We need to expand the margins. If that's the case, mm-hmm. you know, we all need to step out to where these folks are, um, so that they are inside the margins. Nobody should yeah. be left outside the margins. So yeah. yeah, I think that that's a huge part of what drives our Culture as wordplay. Yep.
0: The other thing that's striking to me hearing you talk about this, I had, um, so I've worked in the corporate world for most of my working life. And part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast is to have conversations to find out what I want to do when I grow up. Um, I had a series of conversations with um, another friend who owns a nonprofit in town, Kate, uh, who she and her husband Ramsey run design Impact. Yes. Mm-hmm. And a few years ago, I started talking with Kate about the concept of meaningful work. And one of the things that she really challenged me on at the time was why, why do you care about this? Why do you want to do this? Is it because you're guilty about the things that you're doing and you just want to, you want to throw some coins in the coffer, Hearing you, and that was particularly challenging to me and has significantly influenced some decisions that I have made about how I spend my time since. I think for a lot of people, the discussion around meaningful work, well, I'm doing something. I want to do work with greater meaning. I don't hear you talking. You you did use the word meaning a few minutes ago, but I don't hear you talking that way because it seems to me that you don't have any other choice. Mm -hmm. Like the way that you are and the relationships that you have fostered with the people that you live with is not a choice where I could do this work and this work is not meaningful. Even when you were doing real estate, you were doing meaningful work. Mm-hmm. And it's an orientation that you have. It's an engagement that you have with the world and your community that doesn't really allow you any other option. And it, there's not a question in that. It's more a reflection to say, I think maybe people who are in the position that I have been in of saying, I want to do, I want to do work with greater meaning. What I hear you saying is engage with people Mm-hmm. And meaning will come from it. It's not a decision to work for a nonprofit or not to work for a nonprofit. It's a decision to be involved in people's lives. And that is inescapable.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I think you nailed it there. It's funny. I, I don't know that I would have been able to say it so succinctly um, that I think. You know, and and that's just who I am, right? It's not for everybody. Some people want stable, secure jobs, and they go home and they take good care of their families and they're good neighbors and good citizens, and that is they're doing good in the world. You know, and that's that's a wonderful, absolutely wonderful thing. Um, You know, for me, wherever I am, I'm just not content to have bad relationships, you know, um, and, and they happen, right? Communication fails, whatever. But but it's, it's true, I think, for every level of the work that I am, am so honored to get to do every day. And so it does come down to the people. You know, it comes down to every single individual relationship. And uh, it's not like I'm going to, you know, kind of squeeze, you know, force meaning out of it. Yeah. But I think you come... At these relationships, you approach them from a place of um, openness and integrity, mm-hmm. and um, you know again a sense of um, seeking to understand before we seek to be understood, um, and uh, and w- what 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 is good for you, what is good for the other side. Um, and I think it can only result in something beautiful. You know, I take missteps all the time. I say the wrong thing, right? I'm, I'm uh, losing my filter as I get older. Yeah. You know, I don't have as much patience as I used to, but, um, but, but cutting through to the ens- essence of a relationship and trying to always show the other side that you have their best interest at heart. You know, mm-hmm. that you really do. Um, that, that, that to me, I guess has been kind of my MO uh-huh. and, uh, hopefully <laughs> it continues to go yeah. very well.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Talking a little bit about the work, uh, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you was the, the difference between working for nonprofits and running a nonprofit. There's got to be a big difference, and how do you do that, and how you learn that? You said that you went to the 826 um, A26 National mm-hmm. Training. Mm-hmm. Um, that how did that prepare you? What did you need to know? What have you learned along the way, and how has the work changed for you in the last six years?
1: Wow. Yeah. There's a lot wrapped up in that. So yeah, it is not glamorous. <laughs> Let me tell you that it is not glamorous work. So the A26101 is what it's called. That kind of introductory workshop for helping to, um people aspiring to launch new creative nonprofits. That, that was a huge help. Just to to even see like, wow, people have really done it. You can research it all online all you want, but to actually sit face to face and right. speak with someone who's done it, and to you know get to ask a group of panelists you know things that might be laughable questions. Um, so um, that was a big help in starting it. Uh, but as, as wonderful as it was, it didn't even begin to scratch the surface. And I'm a big um, experiential learner. Mm-hmm. I just have to immerse myself in things. It's the only way I realize I can truly learn and, and retain information and then you know, grow and expand and innovate and, and continue hopefully to build skills. So I think I could never have gone to a nonprofit m- kind of a master's program or something and learned that way. Mm-hmm. Um, being in it every day you know that, that I guess that's I feel very fortunate that having been a co-founder and there from the beginning I know every nook and cranny of wordplay right. I know all the ins and outs I know I know the things that haven't gone well you know and when we're on to something good how, how we keep following our noses there so I'm a definitely an uh, kind of unwitting executive director um, And um, so maybe somewhat unintentional, but I do, um, I believe in the power of resonant leadership, you know, and so that it's, it's, you know, I might be that person at the helm and again, kind of get to be the face person and that, that main relationship builder for wordplay. Um, But, but creating a resonance among Everybody that that we work with in any capacity is essential to success and moving forward. So I think again, you know, following that, um, learning best practices about partnerships, learning, um, you know, getting down and dirty with the grant writing. (laughs) How do I best write? Um, You know, we're we're churning them out left and right. It's a lot of hard, um, unglamorous work, but necessary. So, but how do we learn to diversify our revenue? You know, you kind of look at the big. Silos of an executive director job for a small nonprofit—you know, right—overseeing programs, overseeing fundraising, overseeing day-to-day operations and mm-hmm. HR, and all that stuff that I know yeah. nothing about. And by the way, thank you. You are officially a wordplay volunteer. I hope you recognize that Brandon <laughs> has contributed to us for for human resources. I'm going to tap you again because uh, we we need some help there. Anytime, for sure. give me a call. But um, you know, so then, um, and I think a big part of the job is. um, maximizing others, helping them to develop their skills so that they can do the best they can. I hate micromanaging. Um, I absolutely hate it. You know, I, I, again, I knew nothing about HR. I'd supervised people in the past, but um, I hate the, the the term management and yet there's, there's leading and there's managing. It's both, mm-hmm. you know, both are essential to this. Um, but I think if you give people the tools to do the job the best they can and you keep that communication open and honest to me that's what an executive director does that's kind of the biggest part of this and again not satisfying from not being satisfied with mediocre Mm-hmm. not be, being satisfied there's productive conflict in the workplace uh-huh. there's productive conflict in partnerships and collaborations uh it's all good as long as you're always looking for the value and the lessons learned and how can we do better so i feel like that's kind of what's wrapped up in it i never could have learned that by sitting in a class you know to me it's um it's a doing i'm, I'm very much i consider myself very much still um you know a, a, a novice at this it's gone very well I, But but wide-eyed and a sponge for the information coming my way i hope To always learn and grow, and that's what I want for our staff, our volunteers, our kids, everybody. Do you have mentors? Me, personally?
0: Yeah.
1: You know, this is awful, and I hope I don't start to cry, but I might. Um, I do, and I lost. I had three, and I lost them all last year. Oh, my God. They all passed away. So, sorry. Yeah. Um, Two from heart attacks. One was our dear board chair, Tom Bonaco, who had been my first uh, non-kind of- um, my first really strong entree. I do believe in ongoing education, so I do take classes all the time. I did a 10-month nonprofit leadership institute with him. He was a lifelong educator, and then helped to develop nonprofit leadership. And uh, another dear mentor who I knew from the real estate world, um, Ed Hubert, and uh, and then Maureen Wood. You know, so I I don't know who might be listening to this, but Maureen Wood was a force to be reckoned with in Northside. She was a very strong woman, feminist um, developer in Northside in the 70s and 80s. And I first volunteered for her when I came back to Cincinnati in 1996. Um, she had something called the Women's Research and Development Center to help equip women to have professions in the trades. And I, that's how I learned all my um, home renovation skills, <laughs> or at least my, my, enough to go get myself into trouble on my own houses. Um, and so, yeah, so all three of them passed away last year. And it was a real kind of a, a, a it was a, a crisis on many levels for me. It was very hard. But I think the hardest thing that came out of it was that same year I was being asked to mentor other people. That was going to be my next question. I just turned 50, right, a few months ago. And he said last year I was 49. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm not ready. I am not worthy. I can't be a mentor. (laughs) I don't have my mentors. Like, I, you know, where's my support? I've always sought. I love um, love feedback. I've always appreciated having teachers, even in things that I might have been somewhat accomplished at just in terms of hobbies and skills. I I love feedback and input. And I, I felt, you know, even though I had the wonderful board at Wordplay, I've got Alyssa, co-founder and dear friend, you know, I've got a great support team. But there is something for me that's just deeply ingrained in me to have that mentorship that it, it's I'm still looking for my next one. So anybody out there? <laughs> <laughs> any, any willing, right, willing right. mentors? I'll, I'll put out an RFP. But, yeah. but I'm really happy to now turn around and be able to um, help you know, in, in whatever capacity I can with others that are seeking a, a kind of a similar yeah. mentoring well, I'm relationship. I'm sure that's
0: immense. I mean, the experience that you have,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, is a lot at this point. I'm sure there's, there is much, <laughs> much to give, but it never ends.
1: I hope. Oh, it never ends. Yeah. It never yeah.
0: ends. Uh, you talked a couple of times about things that in the corporate world would be employee culture. And I feel like the corporate world talks a lot about that because the work is to, to use the word again, sort of, uh, it's difficult to find meaning in the work and so you have mm-hmm. to work really hard mm-hmm. to make the culture good. But you have described the challenges of creating and maintaining culture in a nonprofit. I think not working in one, it might be easy for people to assume that that takes care of itself mm-hmm. when everybody's doing meaningful work ah, every day. Mm-hmm. Is that something, talk about how, Whew, how, yeah. how you cultivate that in that environment, what the challenges to it are.
1: Yeah, you know, again, yeah, I feel so fortunate to have been able to kind of uh, uh, shape and and create a shared vision for the culture that we want at Wordplay. You know, and, and it's I think I think first and foremost it's essential that yes, you know, as as the kind of the top director here, executive director, um setting that, you know, vision, but the vision is inspired by everyone, you know, so it's very essential, you know, staff are very involved in that. Um, you know, in fact, yesterday at our, our, we call our, our staff meetings, the staffy hour every other weekend at the staffy hour setting, you know, every year we revisit the norms for how we want to work together so that everybody has a say in, um, how we share, you know, again, that, that kind of sometimes difficult conflict, how we can be very open and honest with each other. Um, the things that are important to maintain, you know, just our working norms. Um, and then um, everybody has a buy-in to the process, you know, and everybody has a stake in, in a happy and productive work environment. There's conflict all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, a couple of years ago, we hit a tight, tight spot and I wasn't getting paid again, you know. So, I mean, there is legitimate stress in this. And not to mention we're working with, uh, you know, probably 85% of our kids overall are living in poverty. Right. And so we're working often on the front lines of seeing the challenges of that and kids facing tremendous trauma. And so there is the the burnout, the secondary, <laughs> you yeah. know, um, kind of uh, uh, all of that. So um, making sure that, that folks take care of themselves and that they know that they work for an organization that cares about their well-being is so important. Um, you know, again, stuff happens, right? I, I make a misstep. I say something stupid. <laughs> um, I, I in, in, to a policy that might not be as popular as everybody would like. Um, but always trying to think, again, the best interests of the organization first. We do have to keep that in mind. And then for everyone else to have a say. Okay. So what we try to do is create, you know, everybody has a goals, work goals based on our strategic plan and our vision and breaking those down to the monthly to-dos, you know, those monthly to-do lists. And, and um, again, we're still trying to, we're, we're very far from perfecting this, but, but then they get the freedom, the creativity to develop their own path to that to those goals, to that success. Um, so I think, I think just knowing that we value their own innate creativity um, and that they really have control over their realm and that my goal is to support them to do their best. It's not mm-hmm. to tell them what to do. My goal is to, you know, I, I ask my staff all the time, and I should say our staff, they're not mine. I just, they're my friends. <laughs> but I ask our staff all the time, um, what do you need to be successful? You know, professional development, additional tools, resources, mm-hmm. what can we do? I'll go out and get it for you, mm-hmm. you know? So um, I think them feeling valued, I hope, is um, a, a great bonus of getting to work with us, you know?
0: Do those, do those instincts toward, your orientation to company culture come from the same place as the instincts that the initial mission for wordplay comes from?
1: Uh, you know, yeah, I think some, yeah. And community building, right. And, and that connection, that Mm -hmm. level of connection. But I think also it's just, it's, it's, just purely selfish i don't want to work at a place that's kind of got a uh, an uptight jerky mentality you know and i i um it's like wow this is i feel so honored that i get to carve out my ideal workplace because the work is hard and like i said the work is, is not glamorous and it's stressful and it's underpaid um so we darn well better be putting some other pieces in place that make it yeah. something you know where we want to show up we want to be with these people you know we want to be with each other um right. sometimes i have to close my office door but um you know. Yeah. Sometimes
0: I want to be with you a little bit less right now.
1: Sometimes I want to work at my, my kitchen table. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. Yeah. I'd rather work with my dogs today. That's yeah. all right. But no, that's that's usually I need I need my blinders on to write my grants. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but again, it's it's like kind of like not settling for anything less than than a really great culture. You know. Um, I can
0: imagine that. Um, The nonprofit world is a world that's consistently underfunded. It's a world where very often you're having to make do with what you've got. And so the drive for excellence while still doing what you can with what you have has to be an ongoing conflict. It is where to settle and where you can't afford to settle. That's
1: right. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, funders there's a lot of emphasis on outcomes, which is very important, absolutely important, but, um, sometimes outcomes are years in the making, you know? And so to be able to demonstrate the, um, you know, that that we have the skills to kind of have a phased in approach to achieve some really amazing things. Um, but, but what I find, you know, you called it excellence. What, What I find is there is such a pressure on the part of the funding community, um, I think that's where it comes from. I think also competition for limited dollars. There Mm -hmm. are a lot of small nonprofits in Southwestern Ohio uh, to always be what they call building capacity, to always be growing, to always be innovating. You know, every year I get to a point and I say, this is going to be our plateau year, guys. No (laughs) new programs, you know, Uh no new nothing. Just make everything (laughs) better. We're not adding to the staff. We're going to deepen all of our skills. We're going to take what we have and make it better. And inevitably, we have new partnerships, requests every week. You know, new schools want us, new nonprofits want to work with us. And that's a great thing, but... So, so we we can't stay still. You know, mm-hmm. if if you try to level off, you're seen as stagnating in the yeah. nonprofit world. You know, and so you do have to differentiate. You know, I mean, a lot's been done in the past. What does Wordplay do that's different? You know, well, we're not just tutoring in literacy. So, yeah. so you know, saying um, kind of what is our differentiator? What's our secret sauce? In, in striving for that excellence that we do this better, we do it unlike anyone else, and we're having tremendous results. There's a lot of work that goes into demonstrating that and that also stinks, right because it's taking time away again from yeah. the direct
0: from actually doing the work programming telling the, the story that's is exactly not doing right the work.
1: And, and we do love telling the stories, I got to say that's the beauty of this is yeah. you know we do all love to write and, and kind of shout about our our successes and um, and recognize the times that things don't go well, you mm-hmm. know and really work hard to to redirect course. But yeah, there's so, you know, it is frustrating. One thing I want to bring up real quick is there's this whole um, kind of way of scrutinizing nonprofits based on that 80-20 principle. And there's like the nonprofit charity watchdogs and all. Mm-hmm. And I, I understand they exist for a reason, but there's this, basic, there's this totally arbit- arbitrary formula, right? That you want to see um, that no more than, you know, 20%, 20% is to going to cost. operating costs yep. and what they call overhead that's been demonized. Well, yep. for wordplay our overhead is almost entirely our salaries, right? And then our rent and then paying Duke Energy. Mm -hmm. Those are the three biggest things we need to make our programs happen, right? We need great program staff. And and to be honest, we need to pay them a hell of a lot better than they're getting paid right now. You know, we got to keep the the lights on and doors open. And so um, we can't write a $10,000 grant for papers and pencils, you know, for program yeah. materials, and so to constantly be justifying why operating support is the heart and soul of what makes mm. our organization go, you know, so uh, it's just a lot. We're, we're trying to kind of shape our own internal donor culture, you know. We have amazing individual donors, mm-hmm. so that we can have the leeway to innovate more with, with that funding and all, and do things that might, you know, be a little bit riskier, but so far have had tremendous results. But it, that that's you know, one of the biggest dances we do is all around funding and, and making yeah. things happen and how people perceive that work. So
0: how should a person who's looking to get involved in philanthropic work who the first place that they go is to look at donor watch yeah. do something differently to be able to dive into an organization, to be able to break out of the eighty twenty mindset.
1: Do you know, I wish I had a good, clear answer for you. I, I don't know yet because so often, you know, they're, they're looking at the really big nonprofits, yeah. right? Um, the, the huge national ones with multi-million dollar budgets. Right. And, and they should. I mean, they should be scrutinized. Absolutely. But, you know, it just makes me cringe when somebody looks at, say, you know, the CEO of the National Salvation Army and sees a huge six-figure salary. Well, i got to tell you, anything comparable in the corporate world is going to be multi-millions, yeah, millions yeah. of dollars with million-dollar bonuses. Um, and that, to get
0: that person to who can get run that, run level that organization, of talent, you have exactly. to pay for it. That's right, with that yeah. level
1: of expertise. Um, that the, yep. You know, that, uh, so that's something else I think that needs to shift in our understanding, you know we are, um, it's kind of comes back from our puritanical roots, right? The nonprofits mm-hmm. are demonized for spending money at all. Yeah. Um, and it's like, well, guess what?
0: <laughs> yeah. You have to be whipping yourself while you're doing the work That's in order right. to be exactly. seen as worth That's it. right. That's
1: right. Yeah. That's right. So, yeah.
0: For you, what defines success for you? You talked about outcomes and I know from a donor perspective and from an organizational perspective, those are well-defined for you on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. What does that mean to you like how do you how do you know at the end of the day whether you've done what you want to do how do you when you look back at the end of a year how do you sort of quantify i did what i wanted to do this year
1: yeah there's so many levels to that so the first years um you know we were trying to work on a strategic plan which is kind of like the guiding vision right and then then the steps like project managing what we do as an organization uh and, and you know we've had different kind of uh, stages of strategic plans. And sometimes they've been really helpful. And sometimes it's been a document, like many nonprofits, it then goes away into the Google Drive folder, and we revisit it next year when we have our next board retreat. And we don't don't want to be that we're just entering a new strategic planning phase. And I'm really excited, again, that that it will drive everything every staff member does. And it's not just the board creating it, the staff is fully invested, as are our parents, our teachers, our community partners. So everybody's that we work with is going to have a, a voice in creating what we do. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it used to be the first few years, um, I remember when the board was voting to give me a salary in the first place, you know, like, can we do it? Can we do it? And then looking every year, okay, good, you know, um, how did she do? And it was hilarious at that board meeting because it was basically like, okay, wordplay is still afloat. We didn't lose any kids. <laughs> you know, we have this many volunteers, everybody, hurt. you know, all that. Exactly. Yeah. It was kind of like, all right. And, and we ended the year in the black and it might be by $50 some mm-hmm. years, you know, but um happy to say that's not the case now, but um, and so then to suddenly put, you know, so, so for the board, they are essentially my bosses. And, and yeah. nonprofits are held in the public trust. So to be honest, the public is my boss as right. well. And everything is open book. So anybody can see what our, um, you know, anything about Wordplay at any time. Um, but, you know, success for us now is financial stability because it takes that, you know. And so at the end of the day, we're just nearing the end of our fiscal year mm-hmm. today. And I'm really happy to say we have an amazing net this year. So uh, it's so happy to see that. Um, So fiscal stability, because we can put that money, we reinvest back into wordplay now, you know, and um, that is so important. Um, And then our programs, you know, we are are constantly trying to deepen the impact for the kids. Um, And so to see those outcomes um, really shaping their lives and kind of their futures, again, as learners, you know, we don't want to just talk about literacy, although that's what we focus on. Um, so understanding the meaning, especially when kids are growing up with us now over this many years, right. to see our kids moving on and graduating when they're slated to be at high risk for dropping out maybe three, four years ago. Yep. Um, so, so you know, all those go into it. There's, there's the daily successes. There's the big yearly successes. And then there's learning, you know, fail and fail fast, right? Learning from what doesn't work. Right. So... Uh, but yeah, hopefully now this next phase, we have an amazing facilitator leading us in the strategic planning process. So we will have some very clear things. And then it's exciting to share that with the public. We do an annual report. It's also coming out soon. So, so you know, again, totally open book as it should be, as it is required by the government to be, but um, uh, to, to really shout the good news. Yeah. And
0: uh, what are, what are Wordplay's goals for the next phase? You've kind of, Yeah, so we
1: have two locations now, our Northside Writing Center and then inside Aiken High School. Um, Started in a teacher's lounge last year. We've been with Aiken for six years, and and they finally gave us a room. Um, So we're inside all of the classrooms. So we're there five days a week in classes working alongside teachers for integrated arts programs and, um, and then after school programming. And uh, we just got a huge new grant from the state of Ohio uh, called the Community Connectors Grants, funding a full-time new position to help nice. kind of case manage um, mm-hmm. after-school engagement and what we're doing with literacy and creative programming. Um, and so uh, expanding, I mean, it, it's it's necessary. We are, um, we have been doing programming in Price Hill. And so we're looking at more of a permanent home there as well as our next neighborhood. We'll oh. always have a home in Northside. That's always going to be our founding home. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and our heart and soul is there. But Price Hill is a big neighborhood with, a with you know, a a lot of kids. Yeah. <laughs> A yeah, lot yeah. of kids. Um, so, yeah, so expansion. Um, you know, we're um, looking into all kinds of uh, kind of annual creative experiences for the community we're kind of expanding a little bit beyond kindergarten through 12th grade we used to say that in our mission now it's young people Mm -hmm. but this summer we worked with um still in process we are doing a workshop with the down syndrome association and so it's adults of all ages you Uh know and so in the past we've done some story sharing with uh, refugee moms and you know and american moms um so we're looking more at how we can kind of facilitate this this story sharing um experiences for people of all ages. We're going to be moving up the street at the end of the year to uh, a partner organization, Churches Active in Northside. That's the food pantry in Northside. Uh We're going to be their tenant in a building they own right next door to their main location and looking more into how we can work specifically with their population, right? These are the families living in the lowest income bracket in Northside. Um, They serve about 300 families every month, so it's still quite significant. And most of those families go to Chase Elementary School. It's a partner, so how can we deepen the relationship there and move into family literacy so we can support families even more than we have, so. It's a lot. That's a few. Yeah, that, only to name a few.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Along the way, what do you do? What do you personally, not wordplay, what do you personally do to take care of yourself to make sure that you remain in a good place to do all this work?
1: <laughs> that's, it's such a hard thing. Um, so yeah, the first few years it was running on all fumes and, and the work itself was what I my excuse for, oh, that sustains me, you know, that that's okay. That gets me through the 14-hour days. Um, and then my, my mentor, Tom Minako, who passed away last year, uh the first year he was on our board made me put into my annual benchmarks for what i had to achieve um a personal goal you mm. know and uh and i did i did not make it the work
0: a personal goal for, myself. for you yeah and
1: he followed up with me at our monthly meetings yeah so that was fantastic so um so i'm trying to do that with all of our staff as well you know to make sure that we are all taking care of it so you know again with this amazing team i now have um you know, they're, they're doing their job so well. I can I can really have a 40-hour work week. So it's trying to cut out in time. You know, my two youngest, my twins just graduated high school and they're at, at home this summer, but then flying the nest and um, making sure I've got time with them. That, that's my most important thing. You know, still being a, num- a mother, number one, always. Um, my physical health, right? It, it, it stinks. I, I love being 50, but man, I can feel the difference the last five years or so, right? Yeah. I'm a very physical person. So always being out outside in nature. Um, and my family is far flung, you know, all across the country and even internationally. So making, making time to be sure to, to be with them, those things sustain me, my friends, you know, um, yeah, it's just, um, it's hard. Sometimes it's very elusive and I sometimes get my priorities mixed up, you know, and, um, I got to close my laptop at night. That's one thing I've been trying to do is even leave my laptop at work at the end of the day, which is for amazing. I know. Any,
0: any business owner or runner, much less a (laughs) nonprofit.
1: it's it's only occasionally
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's a goal but it's It's happening
1: it's happening yeah and to say you know what i'm off work now we kind of set a norm among our board and our staff if somebody has to send an email after work hours great nobody's obligated to read it nobody's obligated to respond i still might check my phone at six in the morning for my emails and i Uh thought don't do it put it down put it down so uh work in progress but i'm hoping to yeah to kind of shut work out and not have work permeate all 24 hours in the day
0: cool uh, I think my last question is how can people that hear this, that want to help out, get involved with what is doing?
1: Do you know? Yeah. So we have a, a lot of ways they can do that. Um, first of all, if people don't want to work directly with the kids, we'd love to have people give their time and talents behind the scenes, you know, so we always need help with professional services of different kinds from graphic design to, you know, creatives where we're, we're moving into two new spaces this year that we're going to need some help with on design uh-huh. and stuff. Um, you know, uh, we do have, luckily, free a free legal system through our service, through Pro Bono Partnerships. So, you know, we're fine in that department. But anything else, we're, we're just happy. You know, some people just want to come in and help with data entry. Mm-hmm. Uh, if people want to get involved with the kids directly. You know, we have such a range of programs now. We went through a big shift in our program delivery model last year. So this for this past year, we didn't need the level of volunteers that we had in the past. Uh-huh. I mean, really, to date, we have trained about 800 volunteers. And yeah. It's been an amazing thing. But we are now at a point where we're reopening some of these programs, retooling some of them so that we're going to need a huge volunteer population for certain things that we're doing again. So, um, you know, we'll put stuff out on our website about that, especially in um, spring 2019. Opening some new literacy labs at schools. it be great. very exciting. So, yeah, they can just contact us info at wordplaysensee.org. That's Super. the best place to go. And um, we will plug them in.
0: Cool. And I'll put links to that and WordPlay's website and a lot of the other stuff Thank that you. you've mentioned, yeah. uh, including 826 National. If people are looking for information about the model, yeah, all of that, we'll put that on our Thanks, website be at great. the And one
1: thing I want to say too yeah, we have uh, bi monthly open mic nights. That's a really great way for oh, people cool. just to come into WordPlay, see the space, get a sense of our community, yeah. and celebrate the kids. So, Friday, uh july 27th that's coming up um 5 to 7 we're gonna have pizza donated by dewey's and best buy will be there to help too awesome. as volunteers and um it's it's in conjunction with our down syndrome friends um for, for that writing workshop we're doing so Great. um our kids will perform and their folks will perform and then it'll be open for the public to perform as well
0: cool well libby thank you so much uh, i have a ton of respect for what you have done what you continue to do thanks for for walking us through it and taking the time to spend with us and describe it a little bit for us uh,
1: thank you so much i appreciate it any chance to talk about wordplay <laughs>
0: <laughs> this episode of the distiller was recorded live at three points urban brewery at 331 east 13th street in cincinnati's pendleton arts district three points is reimagining what brewing can look like with a design first approach to their three main areas of focus those are art experience and beer and for more about what that means visit Aaron and the staff at three points in person see what they're creating see what they're brewing taste what they're brewing Thanks again to Aaron and the team for the great beer and the great environment. You can visit the distillerpodcast.com where we link out to Three Points website and social media pages. There you can see the space, the art, the current tap list and find out more about what makes Three Points really special. And huge thanks again to our guest Libby Hunter for making time in her amazingly busy schedule to hang out with us on a Friday afternoon. Wordplay Cincy is doing amazing work, not only in their home neighborhood of Northside, but throughout Cincinnati and especially in the schools in which they've been able to establish kind of a front and are doing great work for the kids there. Please check out the links on our website. Learn more about Wordplay's mission and their work and how you can get involved in helping Libby and the Wordplay team expand their mission and their impact. Check it all out on this episode's page at thedistillerpodcast.com for more information. The Distiller is produced, recorded, and hosted by me, Branton Dawson, with co-production and booking from Terry Heist. Our show is mixed and edited by Justin Golden. Our logo was designed by Scott Ryan and our videos are by Mike Helm of Minute Moments Pictures. You can find The Distiller wherever you listen to podcasts. Please do subscribe to be notified when new episodes are released. And if you like what we're doing, please spread the word. You can follow or share our posts on Facebook and Instagram. And the best way you can help is to rate and review The Distiller wherever you listen. Those ratings and reviews help us rise to the top of rankings and searches when other people are looking for stuff to listen to. So, thank you for that. Remember, you can listen and download every episode of The Distiller and find info, including links, photos of the guests, and a map of everywhere we've recorded the show at thedistillerpodcast.com You can also get in touch with us there, or you can email us at mail at thedistillerpodcast.com We love your suggestions for people you Think should be on the show to talk about their search for meaningful work or interesting places where you think we should record the show. And whether by email on the website or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, we always love to hear from you. So until next time, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.